Hi folks, um, just before we start the podcast, I just want to um, pay a little tribute. Um, after we recorded this podcast, uh, we were made aware that um, writer, broadcaster, regular contributor to the Tortoise Shack, Dawn Foster, died suddenly at the age of only 34. Um, she was a great uh, contributor to us. She was a great writer. She was a, a beacon um, and there was no compromise, there was no give and Dawn. Um, Friends of Dawn's have asked that if you want to send tributes, you could send, you can email your tributes to fordawnhfoster at gmail.com. That's fordawnhfoster at gmail.com. Um, if you'd want to make any contributions, um, any, any donations, she was a keen supporter of Dogs Trust. So, um, she was big into, as, as, as many of you know, rescue, um, pets and uh, dogs and cats. Um, and just for our part, uh, just to say that we are deeply shocked and saddened at her passing. Um, Dawn was very kind to us when we started out a few years back. Um, she always gave us our time. She was a fabulous uh, contributor, whether it was uh, when we had her here in studio playing with with Ben or whether uh, she was joining us for the Sunday show um, with uh, her views from, as she called it, Plague Island. Um, going to miss you, pal. Love you. Um, you're one of us and you always will be. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber Podcast. My name is Tony Groves and today we're talking about the mother and baby homes uh, and the continued fallout to the the, the response to, to the report. Um, I was supposed to be joined by my colleague from police, Vicky Conway, um, and Vicky just was a little bit under the weather. So we are saying, Vicky, get well soon and we're thinking of you. Um, but I, <laughs> failing that, we've drafted in um, a friend of the pod and, and regular contributor to the Tortoise Shack and also someone who, uh, a solicitor who represents some of the survivors of the mother and baby homes himself, Simon Magar. Simon, thank you for taking the time to, to join me for this. That's okay. Thanks for asking me to come along. It's a very interesting topic. Yes, it is. It is. And we are joined by two of the editors of a draft of an alternative executive summary in relation to the mother and baby homes report. Two, like two foremost experts, if we're going to be, tell the truth here, in uh, Mairead Enright and, and Aoife O'Donoghue. And, and folks, look, this is, this is something that um, obviously we've covered extensively across the podcast and, and we will continue to do so. But this is a fascinating piece. This is, I think it's, I'm right in saying, first of all, um, there's 25 contributors to this. So, so Mairead, if I can go to you first, what exactly is this report and, uh, that, you're, that you guys are launching? Uh, it's not a report, I suppose, is the first thing. Uh, so the original report to the Mother and Baby Homes Commission um, was over 2,000 pages. Um, and we haven't done that. Anyone who looks at our document will see that it is not that long. It's about the same length as the original executive summary to the Mother and Baby Homes Commission report. And the executive summary is the probably the part of the report that most people have written. And it's where the commission lays out its findings. And, you know, we've we've set ourselves quite a, although it's a fairly intensive piece of work, we've set ourselves quite a narrow task. And the narrow task we set was to try and explain how come the conclusions in the executive summary seem to differ so much from what's in the body of the report. Because I think that's what, you know, there there are other questions about the fact-finding process and its limitations. But there's also, uh, uh, the question that we're answering is more about analysis. Like, what was the analysis? What were the ideas, concepts, 
rules, laws that the Commission used in order to come to its conclusions. And so rather than write an article or an edit collection or something like that, um, we borrowed a technique that lots of us have used before. Um, which uh, usually comes from a thing called a feminist judgments project where feminist scholars rewrite a judgment of a court using the same law, the facts, uh, not changing anything that was available to the judge at the time. But again, by changing the kind of analysis, you can produce different results. And in doing so, you can raise questions about why the original result was as it was. So that's a technique that can be adapted and that we have adapted in other contexts. Vicky, if she were here, you know, she, she, uh, we did a feminist judgments project and she rewrote um, the the uh, report of the Lynch Tribunal uh, into the Joanne Hayes case. So it is a method that you can use for other kinds of legal document. And we found that it works actually quite well for this kind of um, set of conclusions. If if I could come to you and ask you, I suppose the, the, the obvious question is why? Why are we doing this uh, um, alternative executive summary? Well, I think a whole set of things that are going on that different advocacy groups are doing and different academic groups that are in. There's a group in Galway working on language and testimony and there's a group in Limerick going as well. So we're just kind of part of a broader group of people doing different things. But with that one in particular there there's lots of, of law scattered through it and in a, it, the way that the law is used in lots of ways is to kind of push responsibility or to suggest that there was no responsibility, particularly for the state, and and to kind of suggest that there's sort of the the laws weren't there, that there weren't wasn't any human rights there to protect people, or there weren't any constitutional rights to protect people. So in in doing it, I think we're we're kind of in a way intervening to say, well, actually, there there were laws, there there were ways, not great laws. Some of them they only went so far. They only protected people to a certain extent, um, but that they, they they did exist, and there's also like there's a lot of law in it. Like there were a lot of judges and um, courtrooms and solicitors. You like in the full report, you can see we, we law crops up a lot. And I think as as legal academics and people who teach law, I think it's important that we kind of take a bit of responsibility as well for what, for for the way that law is used and the way that we tell our legal history. So this is like our small part of a much bigger puzzle that lots of people are doing, and especially advocacy groups, obviously, um, who, who are doing, I mean, amazing work over a very long period on this. So we're we're hoping to to help on that this particular angle to to, to actually set up what the legal history actually was, what, what the law was at the time, who had responsibility, and I mean we say the state, but who had the responsibility actually here for what went on in those institutions. Um, Mairead, you touched on Vicky doing the previous one on on, on, on this, this feminist viewpoint. So I suppose, could you explain just a little bit around the methodology of this? Because it's it's important, like, I mean, uh, me, me as, the, as, as, uh, as we said before we came on, Ireland's leading failed polymath, I don't get it. So I, I could I could really um, I could do with a little bit of an explainer on what the methodology is and what that what that uh, how that gives that alternative uh, outcome and a different summary. So I suppose one of the things that might be confusing is, you know, we have relied insofar as we possibly could on the main report and we are writing a new executive summary for that main report that could by and large fit with that main report. And there are so many defects in how the commission operated that a lot of people might ask quite reasonably, well, how can you call something feminist if you've engaged with this process, which was clearly, you know, 
I, I think it's fair to say it was not a feminist process, right? In terms of, you know, you've interviewed people on your own podcasts and so on, talking about how their testimony was treated. People will have read Katrina Crow's article in the Dublin Review of Books and, and so on, demonstrating that it was in many respects, uh, uh, for a lot of people, a demeaning and disrespectful process. So that's a tension, you know, that has come up in previous projects where we've used the same methodology. You can't completely remake um, very conservative legal culture. What you can do is you can hold a mirror up to it and you can demonstrate through certain processes of reasoning that other other things were possible. So let me just give you a couple of examples. There are lo- there are loads and loads and loads of examples um, in in the in the report. One is um, just thinking about what when we apply particular legal concepts to particular kinds of injury. So Vicky, for example, led on the reading of uh, sorry, led on the writing of the section on involuntary detention. And one thing we do differently from the original report is how we name things. So we label things in terms of human rights abuses uh, rather than giving a general chronological narrative or anything like that. So in Vicky's piece on involuntary detention, um, she notes that, you know, obviously the commission found that there was no meaningful involuntary detention in the mother and baby homes because there wasn't any law treating them as places of detention. They weren't you know, they weren't um, primarily located within the criminal justice system. They were primarily located within the welfare system. There are exceptions. So, for example, um, uh, uh, Bethany, for example, had two, at least two functions. One as a reformatory, uh, or sorry, a remand home, and the other as a as a mother and baby home. But uh, Vicky challenges the idea that there was no involuntary detention in those places because she says, and she goes through it in an awful lot of detail, people's experiences as evidenced by their testimony to the commission demonstrate that it had all the hallmarks of involuntary detention. And it's just quite a clever thing. She goes back to internment cases from the 1920s and she applies those to the later experiences in the mother and baby homes. And that's obviously a feminist move, right? Because one of the things that happens often with law is things that are recognised as injuries for men are not recognised as injuries for women, even if they're broadly the same. Um, the other thing that we did just like that's an example from argument, but maybe I can give you one example from from process. Um, obviously, there were 25 of us working um, on, on, on this document. One of the most um, difficult parts, I think, of the original commission's uh, report was the way in which it dealt with claims of discrimination, which is to say that it completely dismissed them. And, um, it, you know, so the sections on 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 race, on um, the experience of travellers, on disabled women and children and so on, those were very poorly done. And so we made a particular point of uh, partnering with researchers, not only who are experts in those areas, but who have good activist networks in those areas. So, for example, Phil Mullen at TCD, who's who would want us to remind everyone that she's not a legal academic. Uh, she could be, we think, but she's not. She's a sociologist. She led the section on, on race and she has strong networks with Amri. Um, the Traveller Law uh, Project at UCC um, led uh, th- that on writing that section and they consulted repeatedly and extensively with local uh, traveller groups. The Centre for Disability Law and Policy at Galway, which has international status in the area of disability law, they led on writing that section and they actually wrote it as a small team of four, of four researchers. So the feminist thing there, you know, it, this project isn't finished, it's not final, it's not perfect, but you can see the 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 differences in how we tried to collaborate. Maybe that's the last thing before maybe I shut up is just, you know, it's there's something odd about trying to, to deal in, with public engagement here, right? Because the Mother and Baby Homes Commission came out and said, 
this is the history. The Taoiseach, when he apologised, said, this is the definitive history. There's this um, piece in bold uh, uh, with black uh, letter- black lines all around it in the original report saying, you know, we're not here to produce what's popular or in accordance with any agenda. We just did the history. And so there's something quite... Um, you know, that that claim to authority over what is a huge, I mean, OK, the report only deals with 18 institutions, but a huge, complex, important, heavily contested story. That's not very feminist. So we're coming out and we're saying we've done this one thing. We've done this thing that's within our expertise. We've only done this. We're releasing it as a draft. We've consulted with all these people. You know, the reaction yesterday reminded me a little bit of what happened during repeal, which, you know, where people would say, well, where's your leader? Or how are you working collaborative, collaboratively? Or how does that work? Or is this like a commission? How long did that take you? Like it's, you know, so we're doing something that is much more tailored and narrow and and has a tiny bit more humility about itself. And I think that's that's also like part of what you should aspire to when you're doing feminist research. That's not to say we got everything right, but it is a difference in tone. Um, so first of all, I find all that fascinating and I think it's quite interesting, particularly since we are focusing on the executive summary aspect of it. And, you know, uh, it was the, it was the main document that most people read. Um, it was, the, it was, you know, and we even, uh, even myself reading the contradictions within it, you know, where evidence of, evidence of trials took place, but no abuse, which is, you know, there, there, there was, we've had other people on the podcast who said, well, actually, as you know, never mind, but, but I'm a, as a medic, that, that actually is abuse. It defines abuse within within their remit and their line of expertise i suppose if if i could ask you um what are the main kind of findings that you guys have that 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 we think that you think are more are are more pertinent and more uh, and we should you know pay more attention to findings and that we haven't made any recommendations so it's findings based on on what we did rather than we've Leaving the recommendations to, to, um, the advocacy groups, which I'm sure we'll come back to. But, uh, with the point, the most important one, I think, is the one that the, uh, original executive summary starts with. And I think that's the responsibility. That the, it starts by very clearly stating that the responsibility lies with the fathers and the families. And we say, no, you know, from, from our reading of, of the, the, um, original report and the evidence they collected and collected, the primary responsibility lies lies with the state because and for a number of reasons so you know, not only you know the state's financially supported all these institutions on uh, in different ways uh, across the period of time but they 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 were the state also has responsible once you get to the the constitution um and various international human rights obligations that the state takes on they are it is the state that is responsible for those the state's also responsible for regulation for making sure the institutions met the standards. Sometimes they didn't go in and inspect and note it. I mean, there's, there's lots of evidence in the report of them noting, you know, substandard abusive behaviour, um, terrible behaviour towards babies and mothers. Um, but they, they chose to, to carry on with them. You know, they chose to, one of, one of the, um, institutions in the report didn't close until 2006. Uh, so they, you know, they, they chose, they, it was up to them to regulate and they were aware. They did know. It's not a, a situation where you could say, oh, they didn't know what was going on. Also very importantly, and, and as, as Marit has mentioned, you know, the, the lack of access to any kind of reproductive justice. So whether or not that is access to information, very basic information about, you know, how you get pregnant, how you stop yourself getting pregnant. You know, that information was not 
available. That information was censored by the state. Obviously, we know there wasn't, uh, in the vast, vast majority of cases, there wasn't access to legal abortion until 2019. Access to the contraceptive pill um, wasn't widely available until well into the 80s, even though it was um, uh, legal, but regulated when you had to go to a GP, you had to be married. All of this was extremely tightly controlled, and that was a decision of the state. The state chose to have the laws the way the state chose to have the laws. It chose to have you know, a referendum in the early 1980s to make access to abortion even harder. You know, the state chose to you know, co- cooperate with the British government in sending people back to Ireland. You know, there's lots of incidences. And of, and of course, this is not to take away responsibility from fathers who, who chose to ignore what was happening, but also in a context where society... You know, the stigma, the social teaching coming from, uh, you know, from Protestant and Catholic institutions in Ireland. You know, the state chose to buttress that. The state chose to go along with that. That was not inevitable. The the state chose to do that, particularly after 1937 with the new constitution. So there's, there is responsibility lies in various places, but the primary responsibility, not only for the legal structure, for the funding of the institutions, but also for the way that society was, does lie with with the state. And even if you go through the Doyle debates, it's, it's remarkable. You know, going into the into the sixties and seventies, like when the when the government chose to to reform abortion law, they chose to reform it to make it easier to adopt, to take you know, make, give women less options for consent, less time to think about it. You know, th- these these are the policy choices made by the government. So f- for, from our perspective, that, that means the primary responsibility lies there. And I think that is, that is key. I think that, uh, in, that's, in that, that's the first time I've heard it out, out <laughs> laid out like that. Um, but uh, just, Marie, to go back on, on those points, because we saw in the actual executive summary quite a bit of, you know, um, some of the, 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 the and actually how it was framed from the beginning, like we go back to all the time to end the Kenny telling, you know, we we did, we did this ourselves, you know, it was kind of, and that was before they even started the actual commission itself. Um, but when you actually put it in that context uh, of how the state was an active participant in, in, in much of this. Does do you feel I, I've heard I've heard and you've seen that this has been welcomed by Roderick O'Gorman, the the minister. I don't know um, what the situation is on that. Have you guys heard anything? Um, no, I, I think it's safe to say we're, we 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 don't anticipate ourselves an impact on government. Um, what we're trying to do is to back up the already excellent proposals for action that have been made by groups like the Clan Project, like. Uh, the Adoption Rights Alliance, like indeed Anthos and so on. You know, there are lots of groups out there, many of them with specific needs and demands specific to particular locations. Um, So what we're trying to do is undermine the suggestion that the report itself is solid and that the report itself is determinative and that we can now close down a number of the extra asks that are coming from survivors groups because we we don't think that that the government um, can. I think maybe as well it's worth saying that when we talk about state responsibility, you know, when lawyers say responsibility, other people hear blame. The question of moral blame is a separate question from the question of state responsibility. And I know you've had Maeve O'Rourke on the podcast a few times to say very similar things. What we are interested in is the state's responsibility in 2021 
for what happened in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and so on, right? And the state has a number of key responsibilities, which, you know, people will know because they've been forced into the public discourse by survivor advocacy groups. You know, a report like this can only make preliminary findings. The state is obliged to conduct further investigations at that local and individual level where necessary. The state is obliged to offer redress in cases of mass harm. The state is obliged to offer access to records on a number of different grounds, depending on the different cohorts of people. So, um, I mean, the state has been very stubborn in resisting acknowledgement of that responsibility. But we can't, you know, particularly those of us who are trained in human rights law, we can't come to another finding because this this is a well-established structure of responsibility in international human rights law, including under conventions that the government ratified in the 80s and in the 70s when these institutions were still open and when it was aware, presumably, of what it was doing. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't I wouldn't say that we're hopeful for action, but we are adding hopefully a resource into existing demands for action. And and I suppose if I could go um, again, I know Simon was here uh, to, to to more or less say you know that he's representing some of the survivors and 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 if have you found any engagement with the the actual the survivors themselves in terms of this report? What has been the what has been their um, their their reaction to it? Have they welcomed it? You know, we're very careful to let to let the various survivors groups speak for themselves on, on that, and I'm sure you know various. But we have engaged with with lots of the different groups. We sent out drafts of the report. We asked people to comment, and we incorporated as much as we could from what from what we got back. Because as far as we're we're our, as far as we're concerned, their their experience is their expertise. Like they have a form of expertise that that we don't have. Um, so, so it was very important for us that we, you know, contacted people that we sent out drafts to the various groups, and importantly, to, you know, to to to, to groups who, who were, um, I think, you know, who were um, to get, I suppose, so that they would people would have support as well, because we're very aware that you know, asking people to read something one more time, another thing about them, is a big thing to ask anybody when it's, you know, it's. It, it, it's, a, it's their trauma, so we were very aware of that when we were sending out, out the groups and making sure that we were we were trying to do so in, in as sensitive a way as we possibly could. So we, we incorporated, you know, most of the changes people suggested, and obviously not every group agrees with each other as well, and that's really important. So in the, in when we can explain what we do in the second second half of the of what we published today, you know, we talk about the language choices that we made. I'm pointing out that, well, you know, some people prefer this, this other language or some people like to talk about it in this way for these very, very valid reasons. Because, you know, there are a number, whatever about the government or the government does or does not do or the minister does or does not do, it's the survivors really and, and their family and affected people more generally that are our number one sort of group that, that we want to, to do our small thing to, to assist. This seems like a very collaborative approach that you've taken between academics and survivors. You've had a, a large panel of readers in respect of the executive summary. Uh, it almost reminds me of the idea of sensitivity readers in fiction, where people are asked, you've experienced about this. Have I addressed what you think is important? Can you talk to me about how you came to that model? And do you think that it has um, sort of broader uses in terms of how the state treats and reacts to information about people 
rather than uh, treating them as sort of historical objects. Maybe maybe we can kind of go back into a bit more detail about like because none of these projects are ever perfect, and I think um, if the circum if the circumstances were different, um, if uh, for example if we had more time, if we had a lot of money. Uh, if we weren't having to be so reactive to a state that isn't always transparent about where its policy development is going, I think we could have worked much more slowly and much more expansively. So actually, the example you gave there of sensitivity readers is probably is probably appropriate. I think when we came up with the idea of doing this project first, you know, we had a number of different aims. One was to kind of broaden the pool of legal academics and and other academics who felt competent to write about this stuff and speak about this stuff. So that's one reason for having a collaborative approach that you have lots of people to check with and that you have people like, you know, people like me or or, or like James Gallen or others who are listed in the in the the acknowledgements who know a fair bit about it, but also who have networks. I mean, see some of the historians and so on in the reviewers um, section who can kind of add in details and patch in details. Um, but but really, we were just we were just looking for readers. And when we first came up with the idea, there wasn't a lot of energy for it because it's quite a hard thing to explain. And it wasn't clear how it would be of immediate utility when there was so much else going on. So we adopted a snowballing approach, which means um, which sounds more fun than it is, but which is where like you, you, you start with with your own kind of circle and then you ask them, to recommend other people? Who would you suggest? Do you know anyone else who would like to read it? And so on. And that's how we did it. And obviously that has its that has its flaws as well. Um, and that's why we're launching this piece in draft. And we're going to explain tonight, uh, this evening, what kinds of feedback we can take. Because uh, obviously there are some restrictions and some of those restrictions might be deeply disappointing and I can see why. So let me be like really clear, for example, about the confidential committee um, one of the things we've said, um, I think today in a short piece we have in the journal.ie, is, you know, there was only so much we could do with the confidential committee evidence. And that's an awful pity. And that's not the fault of the people who were witnesses before the confidential committee evidence. People who've looked at that section of the report will see they're not, the, the, the statements aren't presented as complete narratives. They're fragmented. They are... It's not fair to say that they, I mean, they are anonymized, but of course there's judicial review proceedings going on in the High Court now because people are still identifiable from some of, from some of those fragments. But there's very little you can do with that. I mean, and Simon, Simon will, will, will understand why. Um, if you have generalized statements that don't tell you what institution, what location, what context, you don't give you the background facts, they... They're, they're of limited utility in making concrete findings of responsibility. And that's why we've largely confined ourselves. We've given illustrative examples from the local and personal level. We've largely confined ourselves to national and systemic findings. Now, those are enough to justify under international human rights law a better uh, response than the state has given. But we can't correct people's testimony. We can't de-anonymise the Commission's archive. Um We've tried instead to amplify the work of people who are doing similar things. So Eve has mentioned the Chum Oral History Project or um, uh, Home Part One produced by Noel Brown or the concert at the National Concert Hall uh, curated by Caelan Hogan. You know, there are other ways and we've put some of those in the report. There are other ways to correct the historical record, but we we couldn't um uh, do very much with the confidential committee evidence except to add it in as additional weight 
to the findings drawn from the evidence that was considered somehow good enough for the main body of the report. But I think it's important to say, you know, there are clearly two bodies of work here, at least. There's one about testimony, which is very serious because commissions have lots of functions. And one is recognition, irrespective of the findings. People clearly weren't treated properly. But the other is the question of analysis and all of those kinds of rhetorical and conceptual dodges and moves that allow you to avoid making certain findings. So, we, like, there's enough, I mean... I mean, I believe the Good Shepherd sisters had a phrase that they that they sometimes use when they appear before these tribunals, um, which is to say that the numbers of those abused don't ne- don't matter because their teaching was that every person was important, and you know, and they were upset by the suggestion that anyone had been harmed. So, you know, if that's good enough for the Good Shepherd sisters, it's certainly good enough for international human rights law. But even on the main body of the report, you're not seeing one incident here and one incident there. You're not. There's evidence of repeated patterns, dozens of people, hundreds of people, uh, thousands of people in some, depending on the kind of harm, uh, repeating across institutions which were often run by equivalent bodies. Um, so I think I think there's, you know, we're not holding this up as an example of co-produced research because it isn't or of survivor engagement or adopted led engagement because it isn't. That's not what we've done. It's too small and we're at too preliminary a stage and we're not taking away the responsibility from the state to put this right. That's not academics job. And academics job, I think, is to push away from the sidelines and kind of say, look, no, this isn't rational, this isn't reasonable, it isn't rigorous, it isn't robust, it isn't scholarly, it isn't any of the things you're saying, and this is why. But maybe the one thing I will say without, I mean, the names of the people who read for us who were happy to be named and who were happy to be publicly identified with this document, um, I'm not going to kind of give examples from any of them, but like we learned things from working with them that we would not have learned by ourselves. And that's not about new facts. That's about, and it's not about what's true and what's not. It's about interpretation. Because to give you an example, if I am somebody who has an experience of like one particular harm that's documented in that in, in our document. When I'm going through that document, I'm looking for my thing and I can point out connections in how what happened, the, the version of the thing that happened to me is might be fragmented or is appearing here. Or I can point out places where the language, it's, it's like, it's not just cosmetic stuff, like it's not just sensitivity stuff. It's knowledge. You know, people who've been campaigning on Chum, for example, for decades uh, at this point in one form or another, uh, know more about these things than, than you know, to, to um, like a PhD isn't what makes you an expert, right? But on the other hand, you know, we have plenty of um, academics. You know, I don't think this divide between academics and survivors and adopted people works. Plenty of academics are adopted. Plenty of academics have direct personal connections to the homes um, and direct familial connections to the homes, including, you know, including some of us and people will know, uh, will spot will spot names among the authors of, you know, of, of people who've, talk, who've talked about this. So, so, so like, that's not to say that there's, that our expertise can replace anybody else's. And it's not to say we've done some wonderful inclusive thing or that we're a model for anything. But we did have... I suppose the thing is we did have the good grace to run it by a few a few people first before we put it out into the world. That's that's all. That's 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 the main thing we did. And it was it was it was well worth doing. 
And nobody asked us to change anything that wasn't entirely plausible and entirely well evidenced. Um, so, you know, this idea that comes up in the Commission's report of taint or of um, some kind of implausibility or unprovability that comes with trauma. I mean, that that just it's it's difficult to to justify in theoretical terms but we we had a we didn't have any worrying experiences in that respect so um if again I, I know this evening um you guys are you're almost over capacity i think on 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 the actual launch um the it's 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 phenomenal to think that that's level of interest considering you know this this is um if we were to take the other side on it the, the government want us to believe that the report was definitive and clearly people are uh, are are pushing back on that um what you guys will be uh on for two hours later this evening i believe yeah, yeah. So it's a two-hour session. We um, so we have uh, uh, Captain o uh, Captain Connolly, uh, the TD, is going to is going to speak. Um, she's been, you know, a really strong advocate. Obviously, Tume is in her constituency, and she's been a very good advocate. Both of Mary Harney, who's um, uh, you know, was born in one of the homes. She has spoken very publicly and very well. And she's going to to talk as well uh, about the report. And myself and Mairead will go into a little more detail. And then the second half will be open to questions um, so that people can ask questions about what we did and how we did it and our uh, approach to things as much as we can. And then we're going to also explain to people how they can give us feedback. Because as as, as Mairead keeps emphasizing, this is a draft. Um you know, this is a an open document that we we will revise, that we will commit to come back to, and we're very very open. We welcome and we want people to to give us feedback on it. So, um, when the document goes public as well, there'll be a kind of a, uh, we'll also set out how you can do that even if you can't attend. Um, and we're also hoping we will do more events as well because if if we're running out of time uh, tonight and there are more questions, you know, we. We think it's really important that we answer people's questions. You know, that's really essential. So we will um, be we'll we'll set up further events, and obviously we're we're delighted that he, he asked us as well. And, and you know, you've helped us talk about it as well and answer some questions because we do think you know that's going to be really important as well. Also, and and of course, all our authors. You know, there there are twenty five of us, so there's a there's a big group of us there who um, you know with the different kinds of expertise across different parts of the report. What numbers have you got this evening? What was the, the max Three, it could take? It's, uh, it's 300. We decided yeah. to put a cap on it because it was getting too, bi too big, really, to, for us to kind of have a sense of, what, of how we could manage it. Um, we had anticipated something much smaller, really and truly. And uh, so we sort of very calmly put out the, the sign-up link and we uh, honestly did not realise that it was going to be so popular. Yeah. I have one other question, and, and I, I, this is the one that I, I was suggested to me when I was talking to Maeve O'Rourke, and I said that we'd be discussing the um, the report. And this is a question about why the state, do you think, doesn't approach these restorative inquiries in the same way? Do you think it's financial? Do you think it's cultural? Do you think it's expertise? In other words, is it because they don't want to? Or they don't know how to. I, I would say it's probably a mix of all. I think they. I, I do think I'm a, I'm a knowledge. I think they've been, a, a, you know, finding out the good and bad things that happened elsewhere and using that to inform would have been useful. I and mean, we've a lot of experience of transitional justice on the island, and lots of ex excellent people on us, you know, on this island. 
on, in, in Northern Ireland, but, you know, there's extensive expertise there. And in, in Galway as well, in any way, Galway in the Human Rights Centre. Um, so it's, it, there, there is, there's lots of expertise on the island on doing it, but I think they're a, a kind of an idea that, you know, um, I, I think I've failed to have a look around and to see how you could do this. And I think potentially as well, there is a model, and it's not just in this area, there's a model of the inquiry and the tribunal. Um, that's McConnell since like the Kerry babies, obviously, and Joanne Hayes um, is a fine example of, of one in the 1980s where a huge amount of harm was done to somebody. But there's been very little, I think, reflection on, on why we use these, whether or not they're the best ways to do it, and whether or not the models that we use to do them are the best ways of of doing them. And I think that's a part of the answer. I don't think that's the whole answer, isn't it? Part. Murray probably has. No, I, I think maybe in terms of cultural, I don't think national cultural anymore, because I think, you know, living in particular, living in Britain, which has a very similar history of institutionalization that doesn't really fade out that much earlier than the Irish one. You simply don't see equivalent reckoning and public engagement and, you know, availability of public art, social commentary, academic study. So there is something unique about the wider Irish cultural response to these issues and the desire for amends to be made for the truth to be known for people to um for people's very reasonable demands to be met before they die right so i think the national cultural has to be separated from the internal cultural which i think i mean obviously because most of us are lawyers we focused on the legal culture um we don't know what the origin of that is in the civil service but it comes up in so many other contexts this this very um defensive, narrow kind of approach. Um, I think as well, though, you know, I remember when I, I posted something ages ago critiquing this report, and the first reply I got was from a guy who said, well, I hope you'll also mention what a wonderful job Yvonne Murphy did with previous reports. Now, this isn't a commentary about Yvonne Murphy as a person, because, I, you know, why would it be? But her previous reports were about the church and primarily about internal um, internal governance mechanisms and and abuses and failings within the church. This is a different kind of issue. It's a different kind of report. The connections to the medical profession, the legal profession, questions of class, questions of capital, profit, um, status and who it was given to, different mechanisms of social control for different social classes. All of those things are much, much more evident on the surface of the mother and baby homes issue. And, um, you know, for all of us, I think, in a much more direct way, the mother and baby homes issue asks us, you know, what did you do? How did you participate in that? What what is still done today? How has that persisted today? Um, and so I think there's a question going back, you know, to Simon's question about not only expertise, but also who gets to sit on these tribunals. You know, when the truth and reconciliation process happened in Canada, obviously deeply flawed, and we are seeing some of the remainders of those flaws now. But one of the one of the leaders of that commission was a man called Murray Sinclair, uh, who, um, uh, you know, comes from an indigenous family in, in Canada and has that history and has lived that history. And that makes an enormous difference to um to that commission's just level of awareness of the issues. So I mean I know the politics of representation are very difficult and this is a very this is an issue that affects a diversity of people. But um I think there there are there are like streams kind of cutting through culture 
um, around responsibility and complicity that just haven't been addressed. And this commission did not help. You know, that 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 opening statement about blame, you're just blaming men is a very um it's 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 not even fair to call it vernacular feminism because like most most very young women's feminism is much more complex and nuanced than that. It's not about blaming men. It's about understanding complex relationships between gender and power and recognizing that different women are situated differently and have different experiences, even from notionally the same system. So, so I think there's there was there's a sophistication needed in expertise in experience, in process, in methods. Um, and the Mother and Baby Homes Commission has got, like, it. the methods it's used weren't new. They're just, they're an enhancement. Simon has documented this. They're an enhancement of features that have gone before in other inquiries. But now it really has been pushed to its limit. And so hopefully, now that this has been so roundly publicly rejected, we'll see an openness. And as Aoife says, like, they don't have to look that far. The expertise is there, but there's the sense that if you're speaking on behalf of survivors, you've already tainted your objectivity, irrespective of your qualifications. And that's a real problem. Okay, that's a that's a real issue. That is a real problem. Um, and we need to break that. And I do think the things like this and the clan project and Aintis uh, and all of these other fantastic groups and survivors and advocates have really helped make a big difference um, in, in how the public have viewed this. Um, the fact that you guys have people queuing up to get onto a webinar this evening, uh, you know, for something that like that is, let's face it, not exactly in the news regularly is, is shows you that the public are really engaged with this. Um, I, I just want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us. I want to thank you for, for the you and your contributors for putting the report together. Um, I have no other comments. Simon, have you anything to wrap or shall we? We've lost him again. <laughs> Um, not at all. Look, I'll do, I look. I'll just be. I'll put the edit together. I'll just do a quick outro. I I want to thank Maraid and Aoife for taking the time to talk to us today. For Simon for for sticking with us and and uh, and, and continuing to, to to soldier on despite connection issues. So we appreciate that. Um, we have the Minister for Housing, Dara O'Brien, tomorrow at lunchtime. So we'll be back in your feed shortly as well. So that should make for an interesting conversation. Um, conflict with a small C, I, I'd imagine. <laughs> Um, folks thanks for the support um, and we will talk to you all very very soon take care bye bye Tony and Martin Martin and Tony speaking to interesting people only it's the Echo Chamber podcast subscribe now on Patreon